And the good news is that you don't have to get rid of the stressor in order to complete the stress response cycle because our stress response cycle is not designed to be relevant to the kinds of stressors we experience now. It's designed to be relevant to stressors that last like 10 minutes. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kefauver here. Welcome to season five of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. So I'm wondering something. Have you ever had someone say to you, hey, stop stressing out. It's fine. And did you immediately want to use every swear word you ever knew back at them? Did you want to scream back, that's not helping? If you're like me, sometimes the the person saying, hey, don't stress out is actually you. Those obnoxious phrases were coming from inside your own head. In our modern productivity-obsessed culture, we've been sold a bill of goods that stress is just all in our heads. We've come to believe that to experience it is somehow a form of weakness or moral failure. We just need to be better, stronger, tougher, and then we won't feel it. But what if I told you stress isn't all in your head or a moral failure? What if I told you experiencing stress can be a good thing? I know, I know you're thinking WTF, Lisa. Stress gets a bad rap, though. Stress, it turns out, is a helpful, natural, physiological response in our bodies. Yes, I said bodies, not hanging out in our intellectual brain. It shows up when we perceive danger and it gets our attention so we can get to safety. In our modern lives, the problem isn't stress per se. The problem is that it's become harder and harder to recognize the sources of our stress since it's no longer the saber-toothed tiger chasing us. The even bigger problem, actually, is that we've lost touch with our ability to discharge the stress from our bodies. You might be wondering, why am I talking about stress and burnout on a podcast about grief? Well, as you've likely experienced, grief is essentially a chronic stressor. This is particularly true in a culture that is grief avoidant and where toxic positivity is rampant, where we no longer live in tribes or communities that can help us discharge the stress. In essence, we're left to our own devices to figure out how to be with our grief. The good news is that today's guest, Emily Nagoski, co-author of the phenomenal book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, will help us unpack the myths of stress and help us understand the strategies we need to discharge our stress, the kind we experience in grief and, well, in life. Now get ready. She is full of wisdom, stories, humor, energy, and so much more. I can't wait for you to meet her, truly. Y'all, just got to give me a minute because I have been fangirling out and I thought I was over it, but I'm not quite. But I am so thrilled to be saying these words. Please welcome Emily Nagoski to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Welcome, Emily, to the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Such a thrill. You all know who follow me. If you're a student of mine in my loss and grief class, if you follow me on social media at Lisa Kifoffer MSW, if you're a friend of mine, I've probably bought you a copy of her book. She and her twin sister. I'm not joking, by the way. I'm up, I'm there for your sales. Don't worry about it, sister. Um, oh, thanks. Yes. Uh, Burnout: The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. 
most phenomenal book. Dropping a link into the show notes. Get yourself a copy. Probably gets two because I'm telling you, like me, you're going to mark yours up and you're not going to want to share it. Um, such a game changer. So, so thrilled to have you on the show uh, to explore the relation, just what is stress, um, burnout, the relationship between stress and burnout and grief, exploring some of the tools that we can use, and um, just a differentiation of what those are, um, mm -hmm. uh, and so much more. And I, of course, I want to dive into some of your other work um, and your other books. So we're going to talk about that today. But you won't be surprised to know since you've listened to the show. I want to start our conversation today where I start all of them, which is just inviting you to share an early memory of grief and loss and how the adults in your life, you know, were talking or not or modeling grief um, and mourning behaviors or not. And what do you think that taught you about what grief should, air quotes, look like? Yeah. Yeah. Can you think of an early memory? I was fortunate enough not to lose anyone early yeah. in my life. So when I hear that question, I actually think yeah. of a story from my childhood about pain. Yeah. Um, when we were five-ish, six-ish years old, uh, our brother's two years older than we were. We got home from a long trip. Our father drove a red VW microbus. And yep. yep. Uh, at the end of the trip, for some reason, all three of us stood at the end of the car looking at the tailpipe and my brother dared me to grab the tailpipe. Oh, brothers. <laughs> and I did. And I burned my hand very badly. Yeah. And uh, the treatment for that from my parents was to put a box fan at the end of my bed and I held my hand up to the fan and all night just like screamed and cried in pain. And the reason I relate this to grief is because mm -hmm. the main emotion I felt was not, I mean, the physical pain was awful, yeah. but the yeah. physical pain right now is totally healed. I don't feel anything, but yeah. even now just recounting the story. Yeah. I remember how lonely I felt and I feel the loneliness a little bit still, yeah. even though Amelia and I shared a bedroom yeah. and my memory of the night is that she was asleep. Everyone was asleep. My parents were asleep in the bedroom right through the wall. My yeah. brother was asleep down the hall. Um, and that's like the family we lived in, with alcoholic, very inadequate parenting happening. My mother was truly doing her best in a very dark, difficult situation. Yeah. I have no malice for what happened, but like that I was alone in yeah. intense physical pain. And as we were writing burnout, yeah, We started writing this book because uh, I had been teaching Amelia what I knew about stress, stress education, yes. as a health educator on college campuses, because she was hospitalized during her graduate education for health issues that the doctors called just stress, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and right. I, I, I was like, here's peer review. Here's what I know. About how yeah. Stress is a physiological event happening in your body. Um, and I wrote about that in my first book, Come As You Are, which is, it's a book about women's sexuality. It's about sex. Yes. Yeah. But when I was traveling, I would talk to people all the time who'd be like, yeah, all that science about sexuality, that's great. But you know, the one chapter that changed everything for me was the one about stress, stress. and emotions. And I told Amelia that and she was like, yeah, no kidding. Because remember when you taught me that stuff and it, you know, saved my life, she said twice. Yeah. She said, and I said, okay, so we should write a book about we that. Should. So we started writing this book. 
And we thought it was going to be about like stress management and self-help. Yeah. <laughs> and the science we were reading kept saying the answer is love. It's connection. Yeah. It's yeah. love and connection. It's love and connection. We, given the family we grew up in, did not want the answer to be love, love and connection. Right. You're like, dang it. Yeah, can it be something? love. Can we go why back to the drawing be, board? Can why it be can't something it be exercise? Else? Right. Right. And in, right. so we were like, we've got to, we've got to follow our own advice that we're putting into this book. Yeah. So we started telling each other the stories from our childhood, which anyone who grew up in an alcoholic family of origin, you know, you're not allowed to tell the stories. Right. You're not allowed to tell right. anyone, not even the identical twin with whom you shared a bedroom. Yeah. So yeah. we started telling the stories. And that so I was can, like, do you remember yeah. that time I burned my hand and I was lying there with my hand in so much pain and I felt so alone because you were asleep, I said. And Amelia said, I remember that night. She said, I remember feeling like I wasn't allowed to notice your pain. Oof. And just hearing her say it healed something. I was just going to say that's so reparative. And like, we grew up in this really dysfunctional family. Both of us are on the spectrum. If she and I can heal these kinds of ancient emotional wounds, these attachment wounds from early in our lives, yeah. literally anyone can do it. Yeah. 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 It is like, it's difficult and ugly but yeah it changed our lives it changed our relationship it means that i now have a twin in the way that people assume it feels like you have a twin when you say you've got a twin oh that must yeah. be so nice that you've got like a twin <laughs> and so now and they just get like, you and you guys just can like read just each other's immediately mind. without having to like do anything like we had to do so much emotional work yeah but now we have that thing so yeah. when I think of like early experiences of grief, what I think about is isolation yeah. and feeling helpless and the ways we can repair those wounds even 30 years later. It's so powerful. That's so powerful. Emily, this is um, everything. I so, I mean, I'm so sorry that you went through that experience and you had to be the child who felt so isolated in your pain. But when I say I'm so grateful that you shared that story, because I think that is really at the crux of what it is I'm trying to do with the show, with my work, with my TED Talk, with my own book that's coming out, which is grief is hard. Pain is hard. We're not saying that we're not going to go through pain. We're going to have losses. We're going to have painful events, but they're going to be made unnecessarily more painful. We're going to experience another level of unnecessary suffering if we can't honestly, thoughtfully, empathetically show up for ourselves and one another yeah. and recognize the truth about grief, not this myth of, you know, moving on and just checking some yeah. boxes, right? And that, and that it requires us to be like, side by side with somebody who's in their deep pain and hold it. We're not there to fix it. Nobody could have repaired yep. your, I mean, maybe they're going to put some salve on it or something, but like really the pain that you were experiencing was the pain of not being seen, of feeling alone yes. in your pain. And that's what so many grievers, when I work with individuals, when I talk with my students, that's the unnecessary suffering we experience, right? Is that lack of belonging, that lack of being seen just as we are. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. I think there's really much more of a parallel between physical injury and emotional injury than yes. we will let ourselves acknowledge. Um, like when someone does you harm, if they, if they cause harm to you and yeah. they apologize. Yeah. And you're not done hurting yet. Yeah. People are like, but I apologize, but I did all the repair work everybody says I'm supposed yeah. to do. And, and you're still hurt? Like, what's the matter with yeah. you? But yeah. so to go back to another, I tell this story in, in the new book, actually, um, another childhood story. I accidentally thwacked Amelia in the face with a baseball bat. She was, she was a catcher and my, my brother pitched and I very enthusiastically swung the bat over my shoulder and I clocked her in the face and knocked out both her front teeth. Yikes. Whoops. Right? <laughs> yeah. I felt remorse. Yeah. I apologized. My remorse and my apology could not heal her cracked lip, her split lip. They could not make her front teeth grow in. Yeah. And the same is true when we experience loss, when harm is done to us by another person. Like it's important that someone who causes harm feels yeah. remorse and apologizes. And it is normal that that's not enough to heal the wound that has happened in a person. There is a difference between dealing with the, the, the injury yeah. and dealing with all the feelings everybody has about the injury. Those are two different processes. And the clearer we can get that like, there's like, there's damage yeah. when, when you're grieving, when you have lost someone, you have lost that person. Yeah. And that's a wound that will take so long and so much love to heal. And then there's all the feelings everybody has yeah. about the loss and about the injury and about sort of like the mess that's left behind and the skills and tools that help you with the wound itself are not necessarily the same as the tools that help you deal with all the stuff that comes with it. Yeah. Uh, yes. Could not agree more. If you're watching me on video, you're just seeing me be like, yep, yep, nodding my head here back and forth. So profoundly important. And I think that, uh, you know, showing when we think about being a grief ally or a grief supporter and showing up for somebody and acknowledging like it's hard, I'm so sorry that it's hard or whatever the words that you want to say to that person. Um, it's about us building our capacity to be with someone when it's still hard for them in three months and six months and they're yep. still doing that healing work and we're still showing up and we're not expecting that it's our job responsibility or capacity to fix them with our words or even our actions. But it's about our capacity, like what you were craving and what you now have with your sister, Amelia. It's for the for that bubble of love, as you refer to it in the book, but is that right. connection, right, of the showing up and keeping showing up. That's, to me, I think the hardest for all of us to do, because whether or not we were grow up, grew up in a dysfunctional alcoholic family, we all grew up in our own ver I mean, I definitely grew up in my own version of a dysfunctional family, but we also gr we grow up in a culture here in the West that's does not support. I mean, we are the literal individualistic, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do it alone kind of culture, and that comes really smack in the face of the kind of nurturance we need when we feel pain, when we feel stress. It's what leads us to burnout, which is sort of what you start to unpack in the beginning of your book. I, you know, I'm a 
social worker. I've studied all this stuff. I thought I knew some stuff. And then I read your book and I was like, oh, I did not know some stuff. Now I <laughs> like, now I know some stuff and I've, I've been applying it. So I'd love for you to start to just even like rewind with some basics, like maybe definitions really sure. of like stressor and stress and burnout. And I want to read this passage after you do that. I like, you can see y'all, I underlined, <laughs> it's actually, I've honoring you. I'm not honoring, but like, I feel honored to have been able to include it in my forthcoming book. It's just a game changer about that. But how, what do we tell me what the what, quote is before I talk the about quote, it? It's the good news. The stress is not the problem. The problem is that the strategies, you know, it's the stressor and the stress. Yes. That's the thing. That was the game changer of really understanding. Spoiler alert, everyone, is that you don't need to get rid of the stressor in order to deal with the stress. And I think we've gotten it, including myself, so wrong. And that is such good news, especially for those of us who are going through grief, which in my mind is really a chronic stressor. Yeah. And we're not going to physiologically. That's what it I is. I mean, if I could bring my, you know, husband back to life, I would, but I can't. He's gone. So the notion that you don't have to, I mean, if you can, and there's like a workplace or something and get rid of the stressor, yes, let's do that. But you don't have to get rid of the stressor to get rid of the stress. So that's that passage that I yes. am going to read. But tell us a little bit about stressor, stress, burnout. What what do we know right. and not know about the definitions there? So the physiology of stress is this sort of evolutionarily adaptive physical body response to a threat or a potential threat. So if you imagine the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, your body floods with all these hormones, the adrenaline and cortisol and oh my. And so what do you do when you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger? Yeah. You run. Run. Yeah. And at that point, there's only two possible outcomes, right? Either you get eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, in which case, like, none of the rest of this matters, <laughs> or you escape. And that's where things get complicated. Imagine you run and run and run and run and run, and then you see somebody in your village who, like, knows that you're being chased, and they wave you into their door, and you put your shoulders against the door together, and you hear the saber-toothed tiger still coming at you, and eventually it <sighs> gives up, and you watch the saber-toothed tiger march away from you. And what do you feel in your body as you watch the threat go away? You have saved yourself. This person has helped to save you. And you, yes, you're tired, you're exhausted, but you're exhilarated. You're grateful to your friends and family. You, The sun seems to shine brighter. You're glad to be alive. That's the complete stress response cycle. And it's easy to imagine that it is the elimination of the stressor that causes the completion of the stress response cycle. But that's actually not yeah. the situation because these days we are uh, basically never chased by cyber-toothed tigers, right? It's, yeah. Our stressors tend to be like the everyday things like traffic and And work. even hard emotions, don't and you think? Difficult, yes, difficult, difficult emotions, emotions, complicated relationships, unexpected losses, getting fired from a job, even the predictable yeah. losses, a parent's been sick for Getting a long cancer. time and then they eventually die. Getting cancer. Yeah, cancer. Huge yeah. physiological stressor. Apart from the disease process itself, there's the stress yeah. of the fact of it, right? It yeah. activates. It's a potential. It is a threat. Yeah. And so your body activates a threat response as if the threat response that's useful when you're being chased by a lion is the same useful response when you have cancer. 
Right. Or an angry boss or the threat of the loss of your home or, yeah. Or your kid is doing things and you're like, what's going on with my kid? Or like the yeah. state of the world, the white supremacist, heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative, late capitalist world we yeah. live in. Yeah. Right. Just like every Talk about day a stressor. Yeah. is a threat. Right. And yeah. so your body's activating all of this hormone stuff. Yeah. And the good news is that you don't have to get rid of the stressor in order to complete the stress response cycle, because our stress response cycle is not designed to be relevant to the kinds of stressors we experience yeah. now. It's designed to be relevant to stressors that last like 10 minutes. Yeah. And how many weeks have you been in cancer treatment? Right. I mean, since like March. Yeah. I mean, months, it's been months, months, right? and it'll be more, many, many, many more months. Yeah. And if exactly. you felt like your body had to stay in a heightened state of yeah. threat response yeah. for all those months. The irony in particular for that situation is that the stress response suppresses your immune functioning. Exactly. Right? Well, I, yeah, I want to get it. Yeah, exactly. Like it's already doubles down on the thing that you're already trying to fight. Exactly. So the stress response is like it activates the responses that you need to survive being chased by a lion or whatever. And it suppresses those physiological functions that aren't as necessary for the 10 minutes that the stressor lasts. So it suppresses your immune functioning. It suppresses your reproductive functioning. It your digestion. Suppresses your digestive functioning. Your cardiovascular system is completely changed. Your blood pressure increases. The blood pressure increases. It's supposed to last about 10 minutes. Your blood pressure. Blood vessels are amazing. They're designed to have like a gently flowing stream most of the time. When your blood pressure increases in response to like stress, it's like a fire hose to the walls of your blood vessels and it does damage, right? But that's okay. It only lasts 10 minutes and then your blood pressure comes back down and your immune system comes back online and repairs the damage, except for if the stress stays high. And your and immune system stuck. stays suppressed. You get stuck in that emotional place. More and more damage is done. Less and less healing happens. And that is how stress, it's just stress, causes yeah. heart disease. And all kinds of things. And that's and really that, the... It's every body, it's every organ yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just heart disease. And I think that was kind of the line. That's why I read this passage was underlined as in my book. I tell my students about it. I'd love to read it to the listeners is I think that notion is I've said a lot, you know, I think since reading your book, I sort of have just really shifted my mindset is like stress is not bad. I think stress gets a bad rap. Stress serves a purpose. As you said, it keeps you from jumping out of traffic. It keeps you kind of safe in these kind of, you know, critical yes. moments. Stress isn't bad. Getting stuck in stress is what's it's getting bad. stuck. Yes. And that's what I loved. Um, you said the good news, as you said, is stress is not the problem. The problem is that the strategies that deal with the stressors have almost no relationship to the strategies that deal with the psychological reactions our bodies have to those stressors. Yes. This is the part that just mwah, chef's kiss. To be well is not to live in a state of perpetual safety and calm but to move fluidly from a state of adversity, risk, adventure, or excitement back to safety and calm and out again. Stress is not bad for you. Being stuck is bad for you. Yes. I mean, posters on our wall, people. This is the reminder because, again, I think this is not only has 
have we not evolutionary sort of caught up to the sources of our stressors? That is even a such a powerful message because it's so counter again. You know, I talked even before I went on air to this, you know, as you said, white supremacist, heterosexual, capitalist, patriarchal culture, which is like, your just job is to just get happy, be happy, not be stressed, have it all together. We have this notion that being in stress means some kind of moral failure and that, you know, right. And that we just are supposed to be in this kind of happy, even kill state. And if we can shift our expectations to go, I mean, I've started doing this practice since I read your book. It's like, I hold, like when I feel some physiological symptom of stress, I like put my hands on that part of my body and say like, thank you body for letting me know there's a threat, whatever it is. Yes. And, and I don't need, you know, you right now for this, but like, so, but, and so that fluidity that you talk about, it's really about our ability to not be stuck and to move back and forth. That is so critical, but it's, it's hard to wrap our brains around sort of countercultural, I think. Is very contrary to what we have usually been taught, because on the one hand, we've been taught that we're supposed to be able to be in control of our lives yeah. and of our emotions. Yeah. But in reality, is the a things that put us in control of our lives are not the things that put us in control of our emotions. And when we try to control our emotions, we are forcing our brains and bodies to get stuck. It's yeah. like the the world is teaching us that we're supposed to get stuck in the middle of a stress response, especially men. If you get gender socialized on the day you're born, people look at your body and go, it's a girl. They start training you to be what Amelia and I call a human giver. Yes. You have a moral oh, the human obligation. giver syndrome. We're going to get into that, too. Yes. Yes, please. Because okay. your oblig- your moral obligation is to be yeah. pretty, happy, calm, generous and attentive to the needs of others like How dare you inconvenience someone with something as needy as your sadness? Or your anger, by the way. Your anger. Right. No, I'm pretty sure you don't have any. No, you don't have anger. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yes. And so like if you're trying to follow the rules of your culture and like behave yourself and be a good girl, you're just putting a smile on your face and everything is just fine. And no, I'm just fine. And I don't need anything from anyone. What can I do for you? Right. Instead, which so gets in the way for so many of us, whether you identify as a woman or non-binary and even for some men, which is this notion that are the rules for men are like everyone, no matter what your gender is, you're screwed over by a system that tells you what emotions you're allowed to feel and which emotions are off limits for you, which are mostly none, you know, like of the 70 something emotions that Brene identified, you're allowed to have like three, one at a time and in any given sequence. I think what I was going to say, too, is I think we end up feeling all these big emotions, anger, resentment, shame, guilt, sadness, sorrow, all, you know, all the list goes on. Um, that feel like such a flood. And then part of our suffering is we don't feel we have permission to have it, that we're going to be a burden to other people when we have it. So we try to just not have it and we try, and then we end up getting stuck. Can you explain, this was another sort of game changer for me about the stuck. And this is maybe leading into helping us start to think about for those of us who are in chronic stress, experiencing a chronic stressor, which I would say particularly early grief is why we can't, and I hate this so much, think our way out of it. 
Why oh, can't we yeah. just tell our, why can't we just tell ourselves to not be stressed? I mean, I was trained as a narrative therapist. So I'm like, I love my language and I do think language is important how we talk to ourselves and others. And why can't we just tell ourselves to get over it and not be stressed? Yeah. Oh. I wish we could. When we come back, Emily explains how and why we can't think our way out of stress or hard emotions. Thankfully, there are dozens of science-backed, free, and quick ways to discharge the stress from our bodies. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Friends, I'm thrilled to share that my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an uncensored guide to navigating loss, is now available for pre-order on Amazon.com, Bookshop.org, and Barnes & Noble. And while the book will be in your favorite bookstores on June 4th, 2024, if you pre-order it now, it'll be at your door that day instead. This book is the culmination of my personal and professional experiences, alongside the lessons I've learned from clinicians, authors, poets, friends, and of course, guests on this show. In place of rigid instructions and must-do checklists, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch invites reflection, encourages self-compassion, and explores the therapeutic power of humor with, yes, just a bit of profanity. As I hope you feel I've done on this show, my book creates a safe space to be inside the messiness of it all, to discover the full spectrum of grief, and to find the tools that help grievers move forward, not on. Grief is a Sneaky Bitch is a comprehensive guide, serving as both a manual full of insights and skills, but perhaps more importantly, as a thoughtful companion that helps readers feel seen and held. So after the show today, head to your favorite online bookseller and pre-order your copy of my book. If you do, I'd love to thank you. So drop me a note at Lisa Kefauver MSW on Instagram. You may or may not know that I show up in person and online in many more places besides in your podcast feed each week. In addition to the keynote addresses and workplace trainings I offer, I've had the honor of leading a series of online grief workshops recently with a community of grievers just like you. In fact, the folks that have shown up for the first two workshops were all listeners to the show. If you're looking for an intimate online gathering space to feel seen and heard in your grief, to learn and practice the skills that will make navigating grief just a little bit easier, join me for one or more of my upcoming workshops in the Reimagining Grief Together online series. You can learn more and sign up at the link in the show notes or head to lisakefauver.com today after the show. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. It's the language of the body we have to respond with, right? Not the language of the mammals, right? Unfortunately, we live in meat suits (laughs) that are full of juice that follow certain rules that have nothing to do with our intellectual language cortical selves. Like we can tell ourselves all the stories in the world. And I love metaphors and storytelling. I find that stuff really powerful. And the reality is 
Our bodies are designed to oscillate through cycles of all kinds at many different timescales, right? We're supposed to oscillate. We're not supposed to rest all the time. We're supposed to rest and be active and rest and be active and stress and peace and stress and peace. And that's the difficulty is not one or the other. It's being stuck in the middle. Wellness is not a state of being. It is not a state of mind. It is a state of action. Mm-hmm. It's that freedom to oscillate through all of these cycles. And if you try to tell yourself not to feel a certain way, you're yeah. just interrupting the natural oscillation that your body is trying to do to take care of you. And yeah. in a way, there's something really glorious and beautiful about the fact that our brains can put like yeah. a pause button on our stress response cycle so that you can be in massive grief and you can still go to the grocery store, buy your groceries, yeah. put on a smile for the checkout person and not make them uncomfortable, get in your cry and sob the whole way home. Yeah. There's yeah. something delightful about and or like being nice to someone who is potentially violent. And yeah. by being nice, you can sort of like lower the temperature on the interaction and get yourself and get out yourself of that into safety. situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's really important. It's a superpower in many ways. And the strategies for dealing with the stressor are not yeah. necessarily the same as the strategies for dealing with the stress itself, which is to say the emotional response. Feelings are tunnels. You have to go all the way through them to get to the light at yeah. the end. And if you stop yourself in the middle, you're just going to stay stuck in the dark until you come back to that place in the tunnel and allow your body to move all the way through it, which like there are a dozen evidence-based strategies for completing the emotional cycle itself just in chapter one. Yeah, I know. I mean, believe me. If anybody's feeling like stuck, helpless, don't worry. There's so many things you can do to help your body release this stuff so that it can return to a state of peace and relaxation and your blood pressure goes down and your heart rate goes down and your immune system flourishes and your digestive system flourishes and all of your organs come back to their full And it's not a one and done. As you said, we're gonna have new stressors. We're gonna feel new waves of emotions if we're talking right. about the stressor of grief and it's going to surge again and and that is going to be at a f- yes you're thinking about it and you're telling stories about it so which is why i think we think our emotions live in that sort of narrative intellectual part but we're right. going to get another wave and that's going to kick into that stress response because we're going to treat that big wave of difficult emotions especially for those of us like anger is like the emotion i still have to work on you know yeah. being comfortable with we try to stop it, but our that's at the physiological level. So our heart rate has already increased. The cortisol is already up. Our digestion system's gone offline, which is why talking our way out of it isn't going to move us through that tunnel, right? We've got to right. embody our way through that tunnel in a way. Yeah. Is that right? Do I have in that a way, right? you let your body tell you the story. Because one of, so obviously, as you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? You run. So the most efficient way to complete the stress response cycle itself is to do what your body is prepared to do by the stress response, which is physical activity, moving your body in any way that is accessible to you, whether it is going for a run or a bike ride or doing Zumba or just like tensing every muscle in your body. Progressive relaxation. I use that a lot. Progressive muscle relaxation. Yeah. One of my favorites, though, is literally lying down. Mm -hmm. Legs up. And allowing yourself to visualize really vividly 
destroying your stressor. So one of the stories Amelia tells is she was in grad school when she was having all of her health issues, and uh, she would get on the elliptical machine before she would, you know, she's a good girl. She does what she's told. She would work out three or four times a week on the elliptical machine, sweating and just be like, after she was done. But when she learned about this, she would, she would get on the elliptical machine. And instead of watching TV or reading a magazine, she would visualize being Godzilla and stomping mm. on the state land grant institution with a parking lot and the bursar's office and her advisor's office, right? Destroying it and uh, like viscerally allowing herself to feel the conquering of her stressor. Mm. And when she got done with those workouts, she wasn't just sweaty and tired. She felt elated and powerful and like mm. she could take over the world because she let her body do the thing that it was longing to do. Our imaginations are so powerful. Truly, our brain doesn't know the difference between something happening in the physical world and right. us really vividly imagining it. That's so incredible. That reminds me of the conversation I had with Mary Frances O'Connor about the grieving brain, which is that same notion. Of, yeah, like our brain reads things in ways that it doesn't have to be real or not if there was an experience in the past um, yeah. Which is why we go to open the door and expect our dead person to be there, even though that they're yes. not, right? Our brain has sort of got that. You story wake up going. in the morning and why aren't they in the bed? You aren't there in the bed. Can you talk a little bit about that combination there? So for some people might think, okay, well, I'm just going to use my imagination, which I think is important. But why is some kind form of physical activity, whether it's stressing and releasing our muscles, whether it's going for a slow walk, it doesn't have to be, I always say, like, you don't have to run a marathon, but just moving your body, being in nature, moving your body. I don't actually, like being in nature, moving your body, those are amazing. And I think they yeah. will amplify the power of imagination, yeah. Yeah. but literally lying in bed and imagining it. Imagining. The thing that matters is that you're imagining it vividly and viscerally so that you can feel your body involuntarily tensing, right? Gotcha. Involuntarily yeah. relaxing. Or if you're doing, um, in, in the new book, I uh, talk about something I call the what if exercise for couples yes. who are trying to heal an old hurt, where you imagine like, what if what had happened was something different? And you imagine very vividly, a, yeah. not that the situation that caused pain didn't happen, yeah. but that some miracle happened where yeah. everyone was their ideal selves and something healing happened in that moment. And you imagine it. So I actually did this with my husband while I was writing about it. And like both of us were sitting on the couch, looking at each other with tears streaming down our faces, feeling how beautiful it would have been. We imagined ourselves like, what if we could go back in time to ourselves 10 years ago yeah. and say to ourselves, here's what you need to know in order to like solve this problem that you're having yeah. that is real, but is going to be fixed and you're going to be safe and okay. And like the amount of healing that we experience just in imagining as if yeah. we could have had that difference. Our imaginations, it doesn't have, I, I think that moving your body is great and being in nature yeah. is excellent, superb. Yeah. And also really what it takes is like, if you're imagining that your loved one comes back yeah, because you like desperately need to be held by them. And so yeah. you just surrender yourself to the fantasy. Yeah. If you feel it in your body, the yeah. safety 
that comes with being held by that person, your brain doesn't know the difference between the safety of being held by them in your physical body and the safety of being held by them in your spirit, in your soul. Yeah. As far as your brain is concerned, it's just as healing. Well, that reminds me of so many things. One of which, or one thing that I think I want to draw out there too, is really it's about your going back to your whatever exercise you're doing, whether it is exercise or your imagination or kind of replaying a, a, a scenario in which like something is good happens. It's really about the signal of safety to your body. Because yes. really what stressor is, is signaling to your body, I'm not safe. It's just that we're not running from safer to tigers. We're not safe from the big emotions, from the fear of our future, how are we going to live without this person, et cetera, right. et cetera. And so using our imagination to kind of be in a state. And this isn't about being in denial, by the way. I can imagine some people are feeling like, well, what is the point of this exercise? Or now you're being in denial of your grief. What you're really talking about is you're giving yourself God, this- it's such a huge confrontation of yeah. your grief to allow yourself to ask with your whole heart for what you need. Right. You only have that need because the loss is real. Yeah. And so you allow your body to, like I said, surrender to that yes. need. You're not escaping. Though, look, I, there's a whole section in the new book too about yeah, okay, the value yeah. of escaping into fantasy. Um, yeah. If When people experience trauma, they're often drawn to particular fantasy or imaginary worlds, yeah. like Lord of the Rings. People don't learn entire fictional languages and read a thousand (laughs) words of mythopoeic literature because they enjoy spending time with a lot of white men of different statures. It's because in that world, their outside matches their inside. Like that's what it feels like. Like I will carry the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way. Yeah. Grief is waking up every day and carrying the ring though you don't know where you're going or if you'll get there or what's going to happen when you do and we love samwise gamgee because he's the perfect co-survivor because he wants to go home to rosie but he will never abandon frodo and if he can't carry the ring he can carry frodo right yeah yeah that's and like when people are escaping into these fantasies they're healing something really powerful because they're finding a place where what they're experiencing makes sense. There is nothing that happens in our day-to-day worlds yeah. that can express as clearly what it feels like to grieve, to mourn, to experience trauma as stories of magic. Agree. Agree. Which is why, as you're saying, our imagination and allowing ourselves so to play powerful. through something is so powerful. And again, it gives us this opportunity to move through that tunnel. Right. And just to sort of discharge that stress so that we can have both some some physiological healing that's happening. But also, as I mean, I had this conversation with Cindy Spiegel, who wrote Micro Joys earlier in in season four. And one of the things that she used this language of like that being a respite and sort of how I think about what you're talking about is like we can't be in the hunt, in the run, in the fight all the time. And in order to be there when we need to be there, we need respite. And and now I know discharging our stress isn't really respite, but the story that you're talking about, about using our imagination reminds me of that thing. It's like we've moved through till we can have this place of ease, 
a little yeah. more ease, a little more grace, a little more. It can be both things, right? So yeah. I read romance novels. I do a lot of work around sexuality, which inevitably means I do a lot of work around trauma. Yeah. I need stories of happily ever afters. Yes. So right. I read romance novels right. because I need, if I'm going to pick up a work of fiction, I need to know for sure that at the end of it, they're going to live happily ever after. I'm not going to have invested my time in these characters only for something to go terribly wrong in their lives, right? Or yeah. if it goes terribly wrong, that's fine as long as it ends on a happily ever after, right? Like that's what I personally need. And that's a different thing from like the your favorite movie where you like pull out the tissues before you even get started. Yes. And you're just going to like have this experience of releasing all this stuff from your feelings through the process of participating in this story. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's. They're both essential. Bo yeah. Both hand, as I often say. Right. I mean, that's yeah. that this is the, that's the nature of it. And I appreciate you. um reminding us that, that we have this innate tool that's within us, by the way. Yeah. And I'm not, and I don't think either of us are saying like, don't go to trauma-informed therapy. Don't, you know, like do all the other resourcing that you need to do. Right. And you have go to this therapy, tool. Create sustaining relationships, get physical activity if yeah. you can, get all the rest your body can find, eat and, a green yeah. vegetable. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. Let yourself vanish into a fictional world that where you're where the world matches what it feels like to be inside. This is where I wish Amelia didn't have COVID because she has a song called, this is why the stories are full of magic. Mm. All right. We're going to, which is about how trauma survivors, like the reason there's all these magic in our stories is because it's the trauma survivors who are full of magic because there's nothing but the metaphor of magic that can express. Okay. I'm going to tell the Moana story. Okay. Have you seen Moana? I haven't yet, but my daughter is begging me to, so I'm going to now, especially and after you, the... You may have noticed that there's a lot of references to Moana in Burnout. Yes, yes. It came out in 2016 while we were writing the book. I saw it three times in the theater as a grown-ass woman. I love this. Tears dripping into my snack. Why? Moana, for those who don't know, is called by the ocean to cross the horizon and restore the heart of Tefiti. The heart of Tefiti is this glowing green stone with a swirl at the center of it. And her last worst enemy is Teka, the lava monster. So I'm in the theater and I see Teka rise up out of the ocean, this like fiery monster. Grr, I see that and I'm like, it me. And so when I saw this lava monster, I was like, that is my internal critic. That is exactly what she is like. And Moana, her special power is that she sees below the surface. So she notices this big, scary monster. There's a swirl in the center of Teka's chest that matches the swirl on the heart mm. of Tefiti. So she does the thing Amelia and I talk about all the time. She turns with kindness and compassion toward this big, yeah. scary emotion she says to the ocean let her come to me let this big scary monster come to me she strides toward her singing i have crossed the horizon to find you this is not who you are you know 
who you truly are. Mm. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. And she puts the glowing green stone into the center of the swirl and Teka, the lava monster, tra- I'm spoiling the shit out of Moana, transforms yeah, like, into Tefiti, the, alert at the thing, goddess of life and abundance, right? When you turn toward the most difficult part of your own internal experience with kindness and compassion, with love and tenderness, when you breathe the same air as your pain, it will transform into a life force. Yeah. Her name is Moana. It's the Maori word for ocean. She is called by the ocean. She's called by herself. Yeah. And the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me, she sings. She is turning toward herself using the power. And I can't describe my own trauma in better terms than like, I am the lava monster. I am the ocean. I am love itself. No. And I go to therapy and I eat my vegetables (laughs) and I do the evidence-based things. I sleep seven and a half hours a night because that's what my body needs. But also, I am love itself and also I'm a lava monster. Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful to like. It is a hundred percent helpful, and I can relate so much. My listeners have known, or if you've watched interviews about me before, in addition to these losses, I've also experienced and survived quite a bit of trauma too. And so, I appreciate whether our stressors come from the difficult emotions of, you know, losses like a death loss of a family member, or the. of stressors of the job loss or it comes from trauma. I think one of the things that I hear you saying there is really about um, not just our imagination, but turning towards that as not some external thing, but something that's a part of us that needs tending to, that needs nurturing that. I mean, I think even about like internal family systems work, sort of like that. Oh my gosh, I love internal family systems. I know we can nerd out about that. But for those of you that don't know, it's really just this notion about, you know, I think this is how I've been able to more recently, especially as new grief has come up and grief around um, my cancer diagnosis and, and some other things has been how we don't see that emotion as some um, external thing here to do us harm, that it's just a part of us that needs to be brought to the light. And we're going to talk next about the power of connection and love to heal us and to hold space for emotion. But I think what we so often miss is we can do that for ourselves. And what I heard you just saying is that reframing is that like, I am, right, the lava monster, I am the ocean, I am love, I am light. And we can this tool that we have to turn towards ourselves when the big, scary emotions of grief or fear of the future come, you know, instead of like locking down or thinking of that as a bad thing that we have to get rid of. It's like, actually, it just, it it needs a big old hug. When people talk about like conquering or defeating their grief or their trauma. Ugh, no. The thing is your grief is a part of you. Are you going to conquer and defeat a part of yourself? Why I love Moana is because she doesn't defeat her last worst enemy. She turns toward her enemy and transforms her into a goddess. Yeah, I think that it is when we turn with kind and compassion toward these difficult, uncomfortable parts of ourselves, like like a child in distress. Yes. Can you calm and soothe a child in distress by defeating her? 
or te- or just by telling them to stop being her, sick. You're, right. You were like, stop why can't we just stressed. tell ourselves? Well, let's let's tell a distressed child not don't to be, be stressed. stressed. How has that yes. worked for you ever? Never. Yeah. Yeah. And right. many of us can think back to our childhood when we were actively taught. Like, yeah. Sometimes it's it it feels cruel. Like, shut up. Yeah. Or go to the other room. room. Yeah. Put we a have lid a lot of go it. to Cork the it. yeah. Exactly. Go to the room or oh, don't put a smile on your face. Don't cry. It makes me so sad when I see you so sad. Yeah. It's all John Gottman calls it emotion dismissing, where instead of teaching a child to turn toward their difficult feelings with kindness and compassion, you instruct them not to because their difficult emotions are not allowed. Yeah. And so and this we is treat ourselves the, the way comes. we were raised. Yeah, we do. Tr- we teach oh, we, ourselves. We were taught. We were taught not to feel our feelings unless we were raised by the supremely emotionally intelligent parents who know about emotion coaching. And I haven't like when met we're in distress, say, right? <laughs> who are they? I mean, I, I was a social worker when I became a parent. My daughter was seven when our, my husband died, and I didn't even parent her that way. Even as you know, what I would like to think as evolved as I was, because I had come from a place where I didn't learn that. I'm now at fifty two, you know, learning to reparent myself in that way. And I think yeah. that's sort of what you're talking about is that emotional dismissal um, is like just as we said, like trying to talk ourselves into not being stressed or not feeling sad or not still grieving or whatever we say to ourselves is. Oh, you should be done with this by now. Well, this is, there was two, two, there was so, I mean, this book, literally, I could just read quotes like all the days long, but there were two things that what what you're kind of touching on here that I wanted to talk about and you use terms. I have sort of my own version in my lingo, but one was positive reappraisal. Right. Which is what I have a term for, which my listeners have heard long before. I've been using this since I was 15, which is called AFCO, another fucking growth opportunity. That's how oh, I do yeah. a po- that's how I do a positive re- reappraisal. Like, what am we I want to learn? Another fucking learning experience. Yeah. Like, what do I want to learn from this? Yeah. As, as a tool. Yeah. Like, I I know I, I often raise my hands. I'm like, I'm, have I not done enough learning? Like, I'm, okay. But the power of reappraising is really incredible to shift our relationship with our difficult emotions, with our difficult experiences, with our stress, right? And the other one is redefine failing, which is sort of, to me, really what you were just alluding to, which is um, recognizing the uselessness or the harm of the shoulds that we have. Mm-hmm. I call that ditching the shoulds in grief. Like that's yes. where we have this suffering because we have this ideal version of how we're supposed to move through a difficult experience or move through a stressor, right? And that... um, That always turns out well. That always turns out well because we have these unrealistic expectations. Yep. Right? In in sex education, we say, stop shooting on yourself. Yes. I actually said that in my TED Talk, y'all, which is out now, if you haven't heard me talk about it before. I said that don't should all over yourself for not knowing. This was kind of my talk was around um, our grief illiteracy. But I do think that the ways in which we talk to ourselves, right, and how we think about if we get stuck in the loop of this is a hard thing, this is a hard thing, this is a hard thing, and we don't get to the place where we see what there is to learn, or when we say I'm feeling because we're measuring ourselves against some idea or benchmark that is BS, we are actually, again, getting ourselves in that stuck place. And we are meant to be, as you said, just like wellness is really about this sort of 
fluid movement, I think yes. our lives are really about an ever evolving transformation or metabolizing of our experiences mm -hmm. and that growth. And we can only do that when we stop being so rigid in that stuck place. Why was positive reappraisal and redefining feeling an important piece to bring into burnout? What, what do we need to know about those? As we come towards the last part of our conversation, Emily explains the game-changing tools of positive reappraisal and redefining feelings. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Friends, I'm excited to share something. This new season of the podcast, season five, I'll be dropping episodes weekly. Yes, you heard me correctly. New episodes will drop each week. So make sure that you're follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode when it drops. If you're not sure how to do that, you simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate every one of you for listening, subscribing, and sharing the show. Would you like to stay in touch with me off the air? I know I'd love to connect with you more for sure. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind-the-scenes content from the pod. Maybe you'd like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. So here are a few quick ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E. F-A-U-V-E-R dot com forward slash newsletter. Just in case you're curious, it's called that because like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'm doing my best to post at grief as a sneaky bitch on Instagram too. We'll see how that goes this season. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, my work as a grief activist, and of course, my forthcoming book. And third, you know the drill by now. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. Yeah, so chapter one of burnout is all about how to deal with the physiological stress itself. Yes. And then chapter yeah. two, we're like, we have to have some strategies for dealing with the stressors. Yes. Yes. So chapter two, that's chapter two is redefine failing, redefine winning. What even is the goal? How do you know when to quit? And this, <laughs> the origin of this was actually in my experience as a grad student. I had a big poster over my desk where I was writing my dissertation. Uh, it was a demotivator poster from despair.com. It was a picture of a, a penguin waddling away from the camera, and it yeah. said, limitations. Until you spread your wings, you'll have no idea how far you can walk. And I found this genuinely motivating because it was like, 
Yeah. Maybe you can't get there the way they all said you are supposed to get there. Yeah. That doesn't mean you can't get where you want to go, even if you have to walk every step of the way. Yeah. Oh. It's not about doing it the way they told you you're supposed yeah. to. It's about getting where you want to go. And then beyond that, like, is this the right goal for you? Yeah. If people drop out of grad school, which lots of people do, grad school is not the right goal for you. Yeah. And that's really okay. Quitting, yeah. man, our culture just doesn't give people enough permission yeah. to stop yeah. trying. Yeah. Like a goal that has been set. Did you choose that goal? Or is right. that a goal somebody kind of chose for you and you're just yeah. pushing really hard to prove something to someone that you can. Yeah. And there is uh like the the mammal explanation for this is like squirrels getting ready for winter. Yeah. Um they explore in a little patch of the forest, right? They're looking for nuts in a dessert point. You're spending a lot more time looking and a lot less time finding because you've already found most of the nuts in this patch of forest. At yeah. a certain point you need to stop looking in this patch and take the risk of traveling to a different patch. Yeah. And looking there instead. Sometimes you have gotten everything you can from this Oof. patch of the forest of your life and it is time for you to take the risk to transition to a different patch. And the thing is, that squirrel just knows. There is an internal something that switches that says, you're ready. Go ahead. And there's no story of, I'm a failure because I'm going to yes. a new patch, which we as humans, boy, are we good at telling those stories to ourselves, to others. Absolutely. No, is, no, I, mean, I have to find, no. If, if, if there's stop being nuts in this patch, there's something wrong with me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's why exactly. it's important. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, and also that brings up something that I've said, um, I'm sure, on the show before, and I, I know I for sure wrote about it in the book, which is we can even start to recognize the ways in which resources or activities or behaviors that served other people or even served us in the past were great. And now they don't serve us. And how can we, instead of sort of what's wrong with me, I went to yoga and it's not doing what it used to do or blah, 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 whatever story is our thing, whatever resource that used to serve us may not be serving us in this season of our stress. And if we can release yes. the judgment and the should about that thing, like the squirrel kind of leaves that patch of, I'm going to be using that squirrel, by the way, story a lot. I'm going to credit Emily. You heard it here first with Emily. Um, if we can leave and give ourselves permission to let go of like that resource isn't working anymore. Like, or I've had so many clients, I've even said this to myself, like I never needed medication before, or I never needed trauma informed therapy before, which yeah, I definitely did. I just didn't know it until later in my life. Thank goodness. I found it now. You know, I didn't need those things before. I'm going to go explore this new thing. And by the way, we're going to go explore a new patch just to keep that metaphor going. And sometimes we're going to try resources or ways to soothe ourselves or ways to move forward with our grief that don't serve us. And then we're going to go, okay, note to self, that didn't really work. Yeah, that's not it. That's not it. But you know that's what? Okay. I mean, I hate, we learned from that too. Like, oh, well, that's not it. Or that's yeah. not it for me now, by the way. I also think there's like, we have this writing thing off as black and white. And it's like, I've tried therapy before. It didn't work. Okay. Yeah. Well, have you tried it in this season? Have you tried it with this person? And not just therapy, whatever your different kind of modality therapy, is, or your imagination, or yes. reaching out to people. Because that's what I want to talk about as we sort of wind yeah. towards the end of this conversation, but if my dreams come true, this will not be the last conversation that we have. But I want to wind towards this 
piece that I think was so profound, both in burnout and I can imagine is carried forward, especially when you're talking about the work that you're doing around, um, you know, intimate relationships and sexuality, long term sexual relationships. But, you know, you touched on this earlier, this notion of many of us are raised with this human giver syndrome. And we also think, which means we're sort of of service to other people. But you you say very clearly in the book, and I've heard you say this in other conversations on other shows before, the cure for our stress. And so I would say this is in terms of also thinking about, again, grief as sort of a chronic stressor in our life. Yes. Is not self-care. Cue the bubble bath suggestion. Although, by the way. Right. If you love bubble bath, I love a bubble do. bath. You do you. I do not. But like, if you do, but that cure isn't self care. It's really about cultivating a bubble of love around you. What yeah. do we know about love scientifically, empirically, but also experientially about why that's so important um, to us when we're moving through our stress? Yeah. Why is love Secure. so important? It's not self-care. It's all of us caring for each other. It's yeah. turning toward the most important resource we give and receive in any relationship is the capacity to turn toward each other's difficult emotions with kindness and compassion. Sue Johnson, the therapist and researcher, calls this it's trust. Are you there for yeah. me? And R yeah. is an acronym for emotionally available, emotionally responsive, and emotionally engaged. And notice trust mm-hmm. is emotional. It is not an intellectual decision. It's not a rational cognitive choice. It's were you emotionally there for me when I needed you? Yeah. As massively, Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, calls humans 90% chimp, 10% bee. We are essentially a hive species. We are massively Mm. social, mostly because we're born underbaked. Right, yeah. we're born before we're actually independent. You mean of versus body. other mammals, even or other species where they can Compared just wander to off. Other and... mammals, like how long does it take for a baby foal, a horse, to start walking? Like an hour right. or two? Right, like a uh, blink and it's done. How long yeah. does it take a human yeah. to start walking? Yeah, actual years, right? Yeah, yeah. And that means that our lives literally depend for the. F- for a long time, for years, our lives literally depend on our adult caregivers showing up for us, for our physical needs, our emotional needs. Human infants, this is this is the darkness here. Yeah. Human infants can literally die of loneliness. Yeah. You meet all their other yeah. physical needs, but they don't get held enough. They can yeah. sicken of loneliness. And we live, of course, in a loneliness epidemic now. Yeah. One in three American households is an individual adult. Yeah living by themselves. And it has only gotten much worse with the pandemic because, and we live in the world of like the Marlboro man of like, you know, solid independence. I don't need anything from anybody. And like your biology is you literally need the loving presence of another organism in order to sustain life. And thrive, not only just to survive, but to thrive, right? Loneliness is the health equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Like it's not weakness to need other people, to need connection. It is your biology. It's your humanness. It is your humanity. It's like saying it's, it's unhealthy to 
require food. It's a biological drive. It's a necessity, right? Yeah. So when we say that the cure is not self-care, it's all of us caring for each other, self-care is actually a message of threat saying, no, no, you have to depend on yourself. I got this. You have to be alone. Yeah, no, I got this. I'm fine. I don't need anything. And if I feel like I need anything, there is something wrong with me. And I'm yeah. just going to go ahead and judge myself. And that's going to increase my stress response, which is going to reduce my physiological functioning. Yeah. The whole idea of self-care is like inherently reduces well-being. Whereas mm. turning toward each other with difficult, your, each other's difficult feelings with kindness and compassion in a bubble of love where the yeah. people around you care for your well-being as yeah. much as you care for theirs, not as much yeah. as you care for your own, because obviously, especially if you were gender socialized feminine, yeah. but everybody yeah. really, we're not allowed to care for ourselves. We are, we have full permission to care for and give to other people. So surround yourself with people who accept and welcome 100% of who you are. Including we, the messy, hard, difficult, difficult feelings. Not, parts of you. oh, your sadness makes me so sad. Put a smile on your face. But like, yeah. do you need a chest to sob on? This is 100% yeah. mascara proof. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. You need yeah. you need to stop. Oh, it's been seven and a half years since your grief happened, but it's the anniversary and you still have a hundred percent of the grief today that you had on the day it happened. Come at me with it. Like I'm yeah. here for you. A hundred percent. Um we all of us walk around with social masks and that's appropriate. Like you yeah. need to be do we just need to be nice to each other. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. also all of us need a time and a place in our lives, yeah. people in our lives who allow us to connect with them fully and who connect with us fully as our full authentic selves. As we are without, as I often say, trying to fix us. And I think right. that's the that's the trap we all fall into is yes. seeing someone in pain and immediately rushing into the fix. Let me, let me, let me give you some tissues. Yeah. Let me like, yeah, let exactly. me like plug the leak. That, or tell you if you just try this resource or you try this thing. And I'm not yes. saying there aren't times and places and spaces when you have a trusting relationship with someone to say that it's useful to offer, hey, I yeah. wonder if this support group is blah, 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 blah. But we rush too quickly to that. And that signals to that person, I'm not safe here. To be yeah. my messy. I'm not actually comfortable with all the feelings. I need you to yeah. like, like, let's. Yeah. Yeah. But and so two, one, insisting that the thing that worked for you is what they need is don't do that. <laughs> I know. Um, when people proselytize, whether it's about an actual religion or about bubble baths, Peloton, I mean, go back to whatever. Pelot yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Zumba. Yeah. Like the thing that worked for you, I love that that worked for you. And that does not mean it's going to work for anyone else or that it will always be the right thing for you. Proselytizing is is no, because it's it's not a signal of safety to the other person. It just yeah. is like, you're doing it wrong. You'd be better and you'd be done with this if you did the thing I did. Ugh. Yeah. And the second thing is that, like, again, the most valuable resource, what we truly need is for someone else to be present. Remember my my feelings are tunnels analogy? Yes. Yeah. Like feelings are sometimes really big and difficult. Grief is perhaps the worst because it's inherently about isolation and aloneness. Yes. And sometimes well, and sometimes and so the person you, you want to turn to most is the person is that you the lost. Person I mean, that was gone. definitely my experience. Yeah, for yes. sure. Yeah. 
Exactly. And so have you seen the movie Inside Out? That's another one. Yes, I know. Yeah. So Joy is down like, oh, they're so good at it. Joy, the character Joy is like in the place where memories go to be forgotten. And she has this revelation all this time in the story. She hasn't known what sadness is for. She wants to get rid of sadness from her tween's brain. And she realizes mom and dad, the team, they came to help because of sadness. Sadness is the beacon. It is the bat signal emotion that's calling out for connection. So when you're in that difficult, dark place in the tunnel, there can be somebody just sitting next to you being like, it's really dark here. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah, it's really dark. If you Let's ever hold hands so we step, don't stumble you over. Hold hands? Yeah. Whenever you are ready to take one step, we can take one step in any direction because any direction that we step together is a step toward the light. Yeah. And if if you are not a friend who can like go to the dark place and be with your person, you can be a voice from the light and be like, I see that you're down there and I want to let you know I'm here in the light Yeah, and I will still be here for you any dis- any anytime you decide you are ready to come and visit. Yeah. And just because you decide to come and visit me in the light doesn't mean you have to come and stay here. Yeah. You can go back down into the darkness anytime you need to. That's such because checking, grief I, is yeah. comforting sometimes too. Oh, for sure. I think sometimes... I certainly have experienced this. I know my clients have is that there's a familiarity and there's a connection to our person when we're really yes. in the depths of our emotions that are related to our grief. And so sometimes the light almost feels like a, too much of a distance, depending. But yeah. I love what you really said about sadness sort of being the bat signal or the beacon for people to come to us. Yes. And I think this notion of connection being such an important resource, love, loving, empathetic connection, by the way, not just any old connection, right? You know, it's not just like another body in the room. In fact, I think the misalignment of connection with people who aren't actually there can be harmful for sure. I think, I know you've talked about that before. So a loving, empathetic connection being the thing that gets activated when we sort of are, have the vulnerability and willingness with the right people, you know, I mean, you know, but we're can not gonna sh- I say it like the first sign of safety for us is other people being calm and normal. So yes. if you go and get a coffee and you just say hello to your barista and have a little chat about the weather and yeah. that's normal, that is a signal of safety for your brain yes, that exactly. tells you like the world still makes some kind of sense. Yes. Look, I had the and social that- interaction and the world exists. I so appreciate you saying that because I can imagine I'm hearing, thinking about listeners. And I even felt this way. I had a lot of good friends, but nobody at my age at 40 had experienced partner loss. So I didn't really have people in my life who could, you know, quite relate. And I was kind of a scary, you know, tale because it was like, oh, if it can happen to her, it can happen to me. Yeah. But your point being any kind of kind human connection, whether we are initiating it as in saying hello to the barista or someone, even if it's not somebody who's there or ready to hold like our the whole big heavy, story. setting tears, yeah. that those exchanges are so have a, have a similar physiological message to our nervous system that 
there's some safety here in the world. Yep. That's what you're saying that it yeah. up- allows that. And it seems so co-regulation, you know what it takes to begin for humans to co-regulate each other's bodies? Co-presence. Physical existence in the same space and our bodies begin to co-regulate just as when we are infants, our adult caregiver's body helps us to regulate our own physiological state. We are wired for co-regulation. And yes, the process of becoming an adult is the process of taking on responsibility for meeting your own needs. But humans have social needs that can only be met through the cooperation of other people. We need those people. We do. And what we most need them for is co-regulation. I want to return my body to a place of at least temporary peace and balance. One of the most powerful ways I can do that is through the loving presence of a peer. Yeah, no, so powerful. I've said this before. I'm curious if this resonates for you or if this is tracks for what you know about the science was, you know, when people ask me like, what's good grief support or how do I show up? I always say grief support starts before you show up, which is regulating your own body. So ditching yes. any of the nervous energy that you have about, I have to show up. I have to fix them. I don't know if I can be able to handle their tears, mm-hmm. whatever the, and because that has a physiological energy in your body. Yes. And so I'm always like, do some deep breathing, shake it off, do whatever you need to do so that before even you pick up the phone, maybe even text, definitely in person, you work on your own regulation so that when you're showing up to be there for that person, you're not trying to co-regulate them up into some, you know, yes. frenetic anxious. Because yes. you all know when you walked in a room and somebody is like all binging off the wall and you're all immediately like... If you don't, if you're not consciously, so Jill is, is Keller, co- who wrote the the book, she is a neuroscient, a neuroanatomist who had a stroke. Did the big famous yes, 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 about yes, being yes. a neuroanatomist who had a stroke. In her book, she writes about being responsible for your own state because when she didn't recognize anybody who was walking in the room, what she recognized was the state that person was in. Ooh. Like I don't know who you are, but your energy is not good. Yeah, and when her mother walked in. She did not recognize her mother, but she recognized her state and accepted parenting from her because of the energy her mother brought, even though she did not know her identity. And that was a powerful lesson for me when I read her book. I'm going to give an example of a pet, and I want that not to feel trivial, Um, but I adopted a dog. His name is Green Bean, and he lived in a shelter for five years. He was a very traumatized animal. And uh, I was I had a job and I would walk three quarters of a mile home to my dog a couple times a day. And on that walk, I felt a responsibility to transition my emotional state from the stress of my job into a calm, peaceful, joyful companion to my dog. So he knew when I came in the door, I was safe and I was well. He didn't have to worry about me. He didn't have to worry about the world. We were going to go out and go for a walk for about a mile. And he was safe with me. He could tell he was safe with me because I personally inside my body was sure I was safe. And my mental health improved because I had to recognize safety inside my own body so that I could be well enough for him. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do want to add that when humans are too much, other animals besides humans absolutely can provide the kind of support that is too difficult to accept from humans sometimes. Yeah. 
I mean, I rescued a dog right when I was starting cancer treatment because I was like, I need my companion with me. Yeah. And she definitely, and she's been traumatized. And I noticed if she starts to be reactive on the walk and I'm reactive, we be, go, both become. So, I mean, oh, I, yeah. we, co, we co-regulate. We're co-regulating. With, yes. And I think just to kind of come this full circle to even where we began today, there's this, there's this both and, which is how do we physiologically using our imagination, using mm. our tools, soothe and and move ourselves through the stress cycle. So that's there's that sort of getting yourself into that neutral state or that state of safety. And there's that well-being. So there's like, on the one hand, there's the capacity and maybe even you might say the responsibility that we have for ourselves. And that is necessary, but not sufficient. Right. right? We also need to have that co-regulation, to have that mirroring of yeah. love and connection to enable to continue to, you know, move along that wellness continuum in order to move through those tunnels of difficult emotions. So it's the both and of like, we have this responsibility to develop these skills for ourselves and right. we are at our best or our most optimum when we can do that also in kind of community. It doesn't have to be a massive support group. It can be one-on-one. It can be a small group of people. Right. Yeah. Is, does that people, make sense? Yeah. And people vary in their needs and they change over their lifespan from yeah. season to season, whether they want yeah. benefit most from like individual interaction to like big group interaction, depending on what is right for them in that moment. Um, one of the things I'm not sure if we actually say it in the book, but when you feel like you need more discipline, when you feel like yes. you just need to work harder, what you need yes. is more help. From you others. said grit. You said something about like you yeah, don't need when you, grit. When you feel like you need more grit, what you need, you need more love. is more kindness. Yeah. Absolutely. You do not need to punish yourself. You do not need to beat yourself up or tell yourself to do better. You need support and love and kindness and compassion, both from yourself. And I'm a giant Kristen Neff fan and self-compassion yes. is yes. enormous and important. And as a trauma survivor... Self-compassion didn't work for me yes. at first because self-compassion, when you're traumatized, might actually be a threat. Yes, and so you exactly. start with compassion for others yeah. before you can come close to being compassionate towards yourself. So We're even though we say like human yeah. givers, like we like human beings shouldn't have a moral obligation to sacrifice themselves on the altar of other people's comfort and yeah. convenience. Caring for others is actually one of the ways that we gain a sense of well-being and wellness. It is, yeah. it is only when we give in the context of people taking with zero sense that they are, have any kind of responsibility to like care yeah. for us also. It's people who like take and take and you like, you know, the feeling of being in connection with someone who is yeah. a fellow giver and is going to yeah. give an exchange because yeah. not because they feel like they owe you something, but because they freaking love you. And they're yep. going to show up for you versus those connections where somebody like accepts your help and they keep accepting help and they take and they take and they take and they just seem never to show up for you. You know, the, yes. the feeling of those. We've all had those people in our lives. Yeah, that's we a very transactional. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The more we withdraw our resources from those kind of relationships and invest more of our care into the people who care for us. The better off we will be because caring for people who care for you is nourishing for you. 
Yes. This is what I, this is, that reminds me of this um, thing that I often share, which I think is hard for people to hear. And honestly, it's been hard to, for me to hear because I am a recovering human giver mm-hmm. <laughs> syndrome. And uh, I mean, same. same, all the things. I know we have, we're going to talk offline. We have some, do we have some few things in common, but what you just said, I think is so important for all of us to hear because so much of what keeps us I mean, I'll speak for myself, but having had so many clients over the years and had listeners contact me, so much of what keeps us from opening ourselves up and for asking for help, for seeing the sign of grit as actually a sign to reach for love, support, is that we have a story that we are a burden. Yes. And we've probably learned that from various relationships in our lives, including our parental relationships, right? Yeah. It's usually like someone told us so. Someone, I mean. We we believe them. Yes. And we believe them. But what you just said is so important. I want all of us to really pause and hear, which is it's really a gift to the person who's gifting you their love and compassion. It's actually the opposite of being a burden. And if, if it's a, if it's an, you know, an honest and genuine relationship, not only are you receiving what it is you need in their action of giving you support and care, that is a gift to them too. Right. And when I that think, mutual energy is yeah. there, when it's not transactional, yeah. when it's not, let me give you the gift of helping me. Yeah. When it's not like, pity, because that's pity. That's different than empathy, I think, yeah. right? That kind of let me do this thing for you in this very removed, yeah. detached way, because there isn't an actual connection or a bubble When there's of love no there. power differential, when it yeah. is like meeting a person as their authentic self yeah. and your authentic self. Yeah. And yes, yes. it's feeds them. Yeah. At least as much as it feeds you. I really want everybody listening to the show today to really spend some time, you know, um, after the show, really connecting with that sensation. Start with maybe a time where you felt really um, gifted by being able to be there authentically for someone you love. If you can't even remember or relate to a time where someone has been there for you, start to feel about like, and so if that was true for you, if you felt honored and enlightened and and like your highest human self because you were able to sort of be with someone in their pain and just really nurture them, think about how much that how important that was for you, how good that made you feel. The same is true for the other person who's on the other yes. end doing that for you. We like to exceptionalize ourselves like that somehow that's not going to apply to us. Right. So here's here's the reverse psychology. Yeah. <laughs> How arrogant of you to think that you helping someone feels good for you, but them helping you is not going to feel good for them. Are you th- are you that special and unique that you're the only one who enjoys helping others? <laughs> oh, is that good yes. Like yes. Jedi mind little trick? Jedi mind trick. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love a good Jedi mind trick. As much as I want to turn with kindness and compassion toward everyone, sometimes people need like a reality check. A reality check. Exactly. No, this was such a profound conversation. Y'all, I say this a lot because I have the honor and privilege of having a lot of great writers on the show. But again, as someone who's experienced a lot of grief, a lot of stress, a lot of trauma in my life, 
and who's trained as a social worker, worked as a therapist and sort of thought I already sort of knew some things. I read this book and really was like leveled up game changer, both personally for my own growth and healing, but also in how I show up for other people in the work that I do with groups and individuals and even organizations, um, working with organizations. So everyone do yourself a favor, get a copy of this book and you want to tell us a little bit about your next book that's coming out so people yeah. can sort of get on board with that as well? So uh, my first book, Come As You Are, is about the science of women's sexual well-being. The second book is Burnout. It's about stress. The third book is called Come Together, and it's about sexual connections in long-term relationships, which are really different from uh, sexual connections in relationships that do not last into the indefinite future. Uh, and uh, I just finished it. I'm really proud of it, actually. Yeah. It turned into quite a different book because a friend of mine who was about my same age, I'm 46, died while I was finishing it. Mm -hmm. And she had been married for about the same number of years as I had been. And I watched her wife grieve on Instagram. And it like... The thing about a long-term relationship is we are not promised abundant time. Yeah. It is the one truly limited resource. Once it's gone, we'll never get it back. And so life is too short and uncertain to have sex you do not like or do not want or aren't really curious to try. And so I just packed the book full of tools for... How do you make the most of what you've got right now, however much it matches what you wish were true, and however much it does not match what you wish were true right now? Yeah, that's amazing. I cannot wait to read it and to explore. And um, and I hope this is the first of maybe many conversations. Maybe when my book comes out, we'll have a little chat again then. Oh, I'd love to talk that. about um, that. But first of all, please give our best to your sister. To Amelia, the co-author of this phenomenal book, and may she recover quickly from COVID. And um, thank you so much for this conversation, for joining in. I know we're going to get a lot of amazing feedback from our listeners today. So listeners, follow, head over to um, your E. Nagoski, I think, on Instagram. Is that right? Yep. And I'm, I'm not a lot on social media lately. Yeah. So where uh, should they find you? Maybe on your website? Yeah, emilynagoski.com. You can sign up for the newsletter, which is sort of the most reliable way. That's what I'm working on with mine, too. I can't quite get on social media as much, except for, of course, my podcast production. But um, yeah. yeah, so head over to her website, Emily Nagoski. I'll drop it in the show notes. So if you're listening and you can't take a note, you're just going like, to head over to the show notes. How do you Nagoski? I yeah, barely know either. Hello, Kefoffer. We're right in the same, we're same, in the right. same camp. But head to the show notes and, and check that out. Check the links for her book, for her website, sign up for her newsletter. By the way, while you're on social media, if you love this episode or you love the show, I would so appreciate if you would leave a five-star rating and write a beautiful review. If you didn't love the show or didn't love the episode, just forget I mentioned anything. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. It's been a blast. It's been my absolute pleasure. Friends, thanks so much for joining me and Emily for this conversation today on grief and stress and burnout. Could you feel her energy? It's such an amazing conversation. I hope you're walking away with some tools and practices to discharge the stress that grief and loss has brought to your life. 
If you're interested in learning more and practicing some of the tools together, you can join me and fellow grievers in January 2024 for an intimate one and a half hour online workshop where we'll explore cultivating the skills and practices for navigating your grief journey. You can learn more at lisakeefover.com. Thanks again for listening. And if you found it helpful, don't forget to share this episode with others who might need it too. If you do it on socials, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW and at Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I want to thank Mike Moody of Permanent Record for the audio engineering support and Guile Smith of Alafia Sound for providing the music. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>